Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. Last week, we covered Tang of Shang's toppling of the Xia Dynasty, which marked the beginning of the new Shang Dynasty. Though, before I dive in, I just want to say that the eighth episode of Dorm Room History, the rise and fall of the Praetorian Guard, is finally out. God, yeah, I know, finally. It's on all the same platforms and it's under, well, Dorm Room History, so be sure to check that out after today's episode. Though, back to the story. When we talked about the Xia Dynasty, I remarked that nothing is really known about them because anything that was written about them was written well after the fact, almost 2,000 years after the fact, and any history we do have of them was clearly mythological in its basis. On top of that, not a whole lot of their stuff or buildings or weapons or anything really have been found, so there isn't really much to hang our hat on there. The Shang, though, on the other hand, and as I mentioned already, wrote down their own stuff. And we have found their writings. We have found their buildings. We have found their weapons. We have found their art. And later thinkers from dynasties just after them have a direct connection to the Shang in many ways. And though while they did write down a lot of their own history, sadly that does not mean they wrote down everything. A lot is missing. Though we at this point just have to be content to have anything at all. Sometimes all they left in regard to entire generations of rulers and wars and invention are just a few quick sentences, if anything at all. But with the combination of the oracle bones and the archaeological findings we have, we can string together a pretty clear history of the Shang. So without further ado, the History of China, Episode 4, Animals and Treasure. As mentioned previously, the Shang Dynasty is noted for being incredibly bloody and incredibly spiritual. And well, you don't have to look further than the fact that they used oracle bones to see that they were quite spiritual. On top of just using these dragon bones, the emperors would be accompanied by a priesthood, then would get intoxicated to some degree, and then would be able to see shamanistic visions. So here's the emperor seeing the future, seeing the visions, and interestingly, and this should definitely be noted, that the old Chinese characters for madness and disheveled both contain the symbol for king. And these kings and priests left us with a lot of their old hymns of sorts, and we know that they pray to the spirits of their founding ancestors and to the gods of the land and of their realm. And yeah, when they prayed, they asked for things like fortune in battle, or for a good harvest, or for rain to end a drought, pretty run-of-the-mill stuff, even by our modern standards. But what was this priesthood really? Well, the priests of the Shang Dynasty can really be boiled down to three different types of priests. The first type of Shang Dynasty priests were the ones who performed the rituals. These were the ones who spoke the prayers, and they were also the ones tasked with actually physically etching the questions into the oracle bones. They were then also the ones who then interpreted the heat cracks that appeared on the bones. However, there were also priests who were tasked with essentially what we would understand today as astronomy. It was these priests who were tasked with analyzing the sky, the stars, and also keeping track of time. These priests who looked at the sky were called Shur, which throughout the long history of the Chinese language evolved to mean historian. As Li Shi today, in Chinese, 
means history. So already, these priests were the guiding force for the emperor and the literal interpretation of the future through their prayers and the interpretations they saw on the oracle bones. And on top of already that monumental task, they were the ones who made sure everyone knew what season it was, what the dates were, which may be something we take for granted now, but knowing and understanding the stars and subsequently time and dates is a mandatory aspect for any civilization who wishes to sort of for any civilization that wishes to thrive. But I said there were three kinds of priests, though. And the third type has their own role to play, albeit a bit more of an intense one, to say the least. Not much is really written down about the third kind of priest, other than some sentences in passing, but it's the stuff that this third type of priest left behind, buried underground, that really tells their story. Because the third kind of priest were the butchers. The Shang were a bloodthirsty dynasty, and it showed in their expansionism, but it also showed in their rituals. Many of the oracle bones that we have found ask if sacrifices, and if so, what kind of sacrifices, can be used to remedy an illness, or a drought, or a flood, or whatever other sign of an angry or dissatisfied spirit showed. But following this logical path, if there is, let's just say, a drought, and the priest determined that a sheep must be sacrificed, how must it be done? Well, oracle bones say, bleed to death. So, well, then this sheep in this hypothetical situation is bled to death, but what if the drought persists? Okay, well, maybe it's time to up the ante. Should we bleed more sheep to death? Sure. But what if that doesn't work? Well, consult again. Maybe we could boil them, and maybe that will quell the spirit's anger. And as Jonathan Clements puts it, these sometimes turned into ghoulish decision trees, where sacrifice was done more in trial and error, and by the end, a lot of things had been sacrificed in a lot of different ways. And by the way, during the Shang, a lot of animals were sacrificed, because it's been found in the remains of old Shang structures that dead animals from these sacrifices were used to support the buildings and walls, with sometimes hundreds of dog and sheep and horse bones, or whatever you might have, built into the foundations of buildings. But while they killed a lot of animals, animals were not the only thing sacrificed by these butcher priests. Nope. Because people were equally fair game. And you can ascertain, by the way, from the ghoulish decision tree we went down involving sheep, that people could also find themselves in this nightmare. And as an example, though, of a known human sacrifice, it is known that in a yearly ceremony to please the river god, a literal marriage had to be done. But this marriage would be different, because this marriage involved drowning a selected virgin in the river to consummate this marriage and satisfy the river god. In total, we know from the oracle bones that there were about 37 different kinds of sacrificial ceremonies during the Shang dynasty. Oftentimes, it was partial destruction of treasure, bodies from a litany of species, as well as food. And on top of that, burning seemed to be the best way to go about things because this released the sacrificed object or being's essence into the heavens. And, of course, different beings had different purposes, and different items had different purposes. For example, dogs were seen as guides, and when sacrificed, would help guide the spirits. 
But the least fun time for these priestly ceremonies were by far and away funerals. The tombs of the Shang upper class are filled with dead everything. Dogs, pigs, horses, and yes, lots and lots of people. The idea back then is that when you died, the things that were buried with you would follow you into the afterlife. So well, if I was a member of the Shang aristocracy, I would want my horses buried with me, I would want animals I could later eat, and I would want my actual stuff to follow me too, right? Oh, and you can't forget my slaves and the prisoners of war I collected. Ah, and best for last, you better not forget my concubines and lovers. Though for my concubines and lovers, you're going to have to strangle them and throw them into the tomb because I don't want their bodies messed up in the great beyond. With all this, I'm going to be pretty set in the afterlife. And that's exactly how it went. But just because you were in the aristocracy and had the power and prestige to get literal people killed for your journey into the afterlife didn't save you from the fact that you might find yourself on the other end of that deal because you might be asked to show your loyalty to your lord or lady when they died by joining them in their tomb. But as the Shang went about their business governmentally and more trouble brewed on the borders and within them, more and more sacrifices were done as times got more and more desperate. Truly, the expression desperate times call for desperate measures has never been more true. And during the last nine emperors of the Shang dynasty, it is estimated that some 13,000 humans were sacrificed in sort of last-ditch bids to get things back in order, whether it was to get a ruler's illness quelled, fix a bad harvest, or ask for more fortune in battle. And by the last days of the Shang dynasty, the emperors back then were churning out up to 360 major sacrificial ceremonies a year with all the works, by the way, including having musicians play and dancers dance, priests singing, you name it, they did it. Lastly, it's interesting to see from a religious perspective how the oracle bones changed over time in both their language and in what they were asking for. Because by the later bones, it was almost as if the priests and the emperor were just merely going through the motions as if they already knew the answer. Simply put, it seems to have evolved from a long, clueless decision tree to eventually just knowing what it would take to get the result they wanted, but just doing the bones as a formality. Well, yeah, look, we already know it's going to take a hundred sacrifice sheep to help us get more rain this week. We just will consult the bones just as a... to please the gods. So in short, that is what was happening religiously during the Shang Dynasty. As I mentioned before, though, the Shang sometimes didn't leave us much information about their rulers, though. The records of the Shang recount the events from only a couple emperors. Emperors like Tang of Shang, Taijia, Taiwu, Pangang, Wu Ding, Wu Yi, and the last and the most depraved of them all, Di Xing. But during the first group of emperors, it seems as if many of them had long reigns, lasting sometimes as long as 80 years, and concentrated more on consolidating power around the Yellow River and tidying up affairs domestically. But one thing these emperors did a lot, though, was move the capital. They did this to sort of put their own mark down, maybe, but the Shang ended up moving their capital officially five times. Rome moved its capital once, and it was almost the end of the world. 
but in just one quick dynasty, the Shang had moved it five times. Yeah, look, a bit excessive and definitely hindered one metropolis from booming into a hub of anything, though I will admit it can be equally asserted that this also created several medium-sized and sophisticated cities instead of just having one big one, which, depending on who you ask, could be a better situation entirely. But of all the emperors we don't know much about, one emperor stands out, though, and that's the 21st emperor according to the old records, who was Emperor Wu Ding. And quick side note, and this applies to a lot of the emperors, if not all of them, they are all referred to by posthumous names. Wu Ding's given name is not Wu Ding. It's Zi Zhao. His family name being Zi and his given name being Zhao. But to history and for all the records know and all the prayers to him in the future, he is simply Wu Ding. But Emperor Wu Ding went about formalizing alliances with the surrounding tribes, even going so far one time as to take one of these tribes' high-ranking women in as one of his wives. Yeah, he had multiple. But under his reign, a big military invention took hold in ancient China. And that invention was the chariot. And look, there is little evidence to state that the chariot was just invented in China out of thin air. Instead, it stipulated that it entered China through Central Asia and the Northern Steppe, possibly indicating some form of contact with even the Indo-Europeans. But by the late Shang, the military were using horses, chariots, and bows, and practiced horse burials that were similar to the ones that were done by the steppe nomads to the west, indicating maybe more contact than we might have assumed. Nonetheless, with his new toy and control and power and a long reign ahead of him, Wu Ding got about to conquering. It is stated that in the 32nd year of his reign, he sent troops to Guifeng and conquered it after just three years of fighting. And subsequently after that, the Di and Qiang barbarian tribes immediately sent envoys to Wu Ding to negotiate peace. Later on in his reign, he sent armies to conquer Da Peng in the 43rd year of his reign and Tun Wei in the 50th year of his reign. So Wu Ding went about conquering, and Wu Ding went about conquering well. But something's coming up in the story over and over again. There's trade with the nomadic steppe barbarians, bringing them the chariot. There's war with the nomadic steppe barbarians. There's marriages with the nomadic steppe barbarians. If you don't realize my drift, the steppe nomads of the north and west are starting to play a big role in not just this story of Wu Ding, and not just of the Shang, but in the whole history of China. Lastly, the Shang began to perfect metalworking and got really intricate in their use of bronze, something that would soon propel ancient China into a technological boom. Because as I said last episode, at the start of the Shang, the rulers had access to metals, the rulers being the aristocracy and ruling class, but all that while the civilians and the common folk were still in the Stone Age. But during the Shang, that began to change, as bronze metalworking became better and better and far more commonplace. So with the tribes in the north and in the west being set up, that's where I'm going to leave it for this week. Next week, we will dive headfirst into the conflicts the Shang Dynasty had with the nomadic tribes all around its borders, and also the eventual fall of the Shang altogether. 
And I would like to say, though, before this episode concludes, that every period closer to the present that we get, the clearer the story. So just hang in there. The fine details are coming, and they're going to come soon. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on Dorm Room Histories, the history of China.